Hi, welcome to episode five of Talk About the Passion. Uh, this could be called episode 4.5 or something like that, but because uh, there's no interview, it's just me talking about Aussie and Kiss and stuff like that. So um, we'll get back to the interviews next week. Uh, as for now, I'm in uh, San Luis Obispo in a hotel here um, recording this so I can get it to the public tomorrow morning and uh next week we'll get back to interviews uh but yeah today i wanted to talk about some myths and, and things like that you'd you'd hear as a teenager uh this doesn't really tie into halloween but sort of does so i thought i would talk about some of this stuff in august of 1977 my dad took my brother and i to see kiss at the los angeles forum with Cheap Trick. Kiss were touring the Love Gun album at the time. I was seven years old and spent most of my life up until that point staring at their album covers. Destroyer had them like on top of this mountain looking, there's a valley in the background that looked, you know, was in ruins. Uh, Love Gun was this weird room where they were on the some sort of platform and women were crawling around on the floor trying to get to them. And then, you know, Hotter Than Hell, which was sort of the weirdest one. The, the back cover of that is like, I, I remember one of my brother, my older brother's friends, had this record, and I asked him what the hell was going on in the back of this cover. And he said, Paul Stanley was balling, which at that point I, I have no idea what that meant. And, and, you know, if you look at that, that picture now, it's Paul Stanley in bed with some woman that looks like she's just filled with quaaludes. And uh, Peter Chris is with some naked woman that has like a mask over her face. Ace Freely is sitting on a planet, and of course Gene Simmons is breathing fire. So, um, but you know, so they, those album covers were were pretty cool to like a, a seven year old kid. When we got to the concert, uh, before Kiss came on stage, there was this sta snake statue on the, the jean side of the stage and it had this little cauldron on top of it. It looked like there was like a, a little stream of smoke coming out of it and it was sort of like a little peek into what was to come shortly when they, you know, opened the curtains and it was, you know, if you've seen the inside of Kiss Alive too, it, 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 you know, it looked like that. Uh, but so, you know, since this was a Kiss concert at the LA Forum in 1977, the whole place was filled with marijuana smoke so i asked my dad or mom you know what you know what this what, what the smell is in there and they said it's pot so as a seven-year-old kid i thought they meant that cauldron that was on top of the gene simmons snake statue and of course you know the mystery became even more intense for me you know was gene burning some ceremonial incense in that pot or you know no, I, I don't think i was thinking that um, but but at the time, you know, Gene Simmons was this mythical person to me. You know, the fact that him and the rest of the band hid behind makeup and costumes put them even higher up on a pedestal. I talked a little about this in my first episode of this podcast and how, you know, some rock stars seem untouchable, impossible people you'll never get to stand next to. The rumors and myths I would hear about famous people at that young of an age were probably from my older brother or his friends, I guess. Or just from the the fellow teenagers I was hanging 
out with in the town of Swampscott, Massachusetts. Um, in my town, my group of friends who were called Burnouts, uh, I, li- I lived in Swampscott, Massachusetts, which is a small town on what they call the North Shore of Massachusetts. It borders the more, more famous Salem as well as Lynn. Lynn, Lynn, the city of sin, they call it. You know, come out the way you went in. Uh, Swampscott was an upper middle class town. I moved to with my mom and brother a couple of years after my parents divorced, and we came back to Massachusetts. Swampscott in the 80s, though, was like a typical suburban town. It was mostly white people, and the school's most popular kids were jocks, you know. And nowadays, tribes in school, I mean, I don't really know. I don't go into schools at this point. Uh, but I don't think they're as divided as they were when, when I was a teenager. If you were a burnout or a punk rocker or a nerd or whatever, anything you had a, anything like that, you, you had a target on your back. Uh, you know, of course, there was nothing to do in Swampscott when I was in junior high. So we would either skateboard, smoke pot, or go to the uh, friend's house after school and drink their parents' alcohol. And uh, I, of course, found a group of, of kids like this I, I fit in with immediately. And, uh, you know, we called ourselves burnouts, which was almost like a badge of honor. The idea that, you know, you, you could already be burned out at 13 or 14 years old doesn't really make any sense, but it seemed to work at the time. Uh, you know, the uniform we wore was simple. It was just denim. And uh, when it got colder, one of those denim jackets or corduroy jackets with the fur collar and fur, you know, lining. Uh, the group of friends at, at the beginning was, you know, there was three or four of us, but the, the main dudes were this guy, Matt, who, whose nickname was Muppet. And uh, he played the drums. He had s- strawberry blonde hair, freckles, and an older sister that similar looks, but we'll, we'll get to her in a minute. Uh Matt's, Matt lived in this big house on this big hill in Swampscott, close to the ocean. His parents were divorced, and his father lived on like a, a Caribbean island. And the mother was a VP for Gillette, and uh, she traveled to overwork. And uh, there was literally no supervision in that house ever. Uh, and I remember every once in a while they would come back, or I mean the mother would come back, and Matt or the sister would give the mother like a leftover joint. Which, when you think about now, it's, you know, we were 13, 14 years old, so that's kind of a weird situation. Um, but yeah, weekends there, we'd, we'd have small parties with maybe 10 of us blasting ACDC and Aussie, drinking Budweiser and smoking crappy brown weed. Uh, Matt's older sister, uh, she was in high school, and I, I had a huge crush on her. She was probably 16 or 17, and I was 14. Uh, but she had this, this boyfriend named Chuck, who was an older guy. And he wasn't as in school, as far as I know, and I don't think it's because he graduated, though. Uh, I just think he wasn't in school. Maybe he was, but maybe he didn't. I just didn't know. But anyway, he Chuck had a tattoo on his forearm of the Grim Reaper, as well as the word Aussie. And, uh, you know, he was quite the character, but we'll get back to him in a second, because there was also my, my other friend Dave, uh, who he lived close closer to the high school, so we'd go to his house more often than not after school. And uh, his his dad had a lot of cool records, and we we listened to like Dark Side of the Moon and uh, Frank Zappa, Shake Your Booty, and Freak Out. Uh, we you know we listened to that song Help I'm a Rock by Frank Zappa. If you haven't heard that, it's pretty uh, 
pretty cool song. Um, but yeah, but but Matt's house was sort of the cooler house to to hang out at, and uh, and that was mainly too because Chuck w- would always be over there, Sue's boyfriend, and uh, he was like one of those guys who would wear one of those leather vests, like Alex Van Halen has on in the on the back of the first uh, Van Halen album. And, uh, you know, we were impressionable young guys, and so Chuck told us all sorts of cool stories that he, he, you know, evidently knew about rock stars and stuff. You know, and most of them were rooted in complete horse shit. The, the main ones I hear, I remember hearing from him were about Ozzy. And, you know, the first one, and, you know, I brought this up recently on social network, uh, social network, on social media, and... A few people remember this one, but it was that uh, Ozzy Osbourne would throw live puppies into the audience at his concerts, you know, and then people would destroy them. So, you know, the idea that Ozzy Osbourne would tour around with, you know, uh, a, a guy that would supply puppies and they, you know, have these big bins of puppies to bring on stage every night and throw them into the audience is isn't even remotely believable, but, you know, I, I imagine I believed that when I was 13, especially because, you know, Chuck told, told us this story. Um, and then, of course, there was the one where he bit a, a, the head off a bat and got rabies, which is, that, that one was partially true. Um, well, I guess it was 100% true, but the story goes that someone threw a bat on stage and he thought it was a rubber bat and he picked it up and bit the head off it and I think the bat bit him, and then he had to, to get tested for rabies or whatever. But, you know, you know, who sneaks a dead animal into a concert anyway? Especially if, you know, the rumor was, you know, you could get a, a live puppy from Ozzy in the middle of the show, so why would you, you know, bring a dead bat in? And who, you know, who was doing security that night? Should be fired. Um... Uh, the other rumor that had to do with Ozzy took place on the cover of, Black, of a Black Sabbath album called The Mob Rules, or just Mob Rules. Mob Rules was the second uh, Sabbath album that had Ronnie James Dio on vocals. And of course it rules, but you know, we can talk about that some other time. The cover of this album takes place in this weird sewer place where these faceless guys in sheets just did a bunch of horrifying shit and now there's just blood everywhere and on the ground there's little you know streams of blood and there's an area if you look closely it says kill Ozzy and and this one's never been proven but it seems a little plausible to me mainly because there seemed to be sort of a a little rivalry between the Ozzy and Dio camps that culminated with Ozzy on the Dire of a Madman tour uh they had he had a little uh, midget dwarf named uh, Ronnie that that would come on on stage and <laughs> and it would you know he would do various activities on stage throughout the show and then they hanged him at one point so you know maybe that was a response to the rumors that the mob rules error of Sabbath wanted to kill him or uh, he was just copying Alice Cooper which you know that's probably more more what happened there. Um, so a- after Randy Rhodes died, you know, in the, the middle of that, that tour, the, the Dire of a Madman tour, they hired, uh, Brad Gillis after, uh, Bernie Torme, who played the Boston Garden show I saw in, uh, April of 82, but that doesn't have anything to do with this. Uh, they released this, uh, live record called Speak of the Devil, which some people hate this record and some people love it. I, I find myself in the latter group. 
there was never a good sounding live Sabbath album, really. There was that Live at Last record, but it just, the cover looked so horrible, you didn't even really want to listen to it. And uh, it was okay. It was just short. It was very loud and, and just wasn't that great. Speak of the Devil was, was the lineup of Ozzy, uh, Brad Gillis on guitar, who was from Night Ranger. Uh, Tom Tommy Aldridge on drums and Rudy Sarzo, which is you know a pretty badass lineup, really. And you know Gillis is a little generous with the pick squeals all over the record, and you know is pretty much the polar opposite of a player that like that Iomi is. But you know he does the songs well, I think. And at th- this point in my life, I only really knew the songs from uh, We Sold Our Souls for Rock and Roll, so I, I didn't really know uh, Symptom of the Universe and. Some of the other songs that showed up on this, some of the more deep cuts, but uh, it's a good, it's a good live Aussie album. I'll, you know, I'll always argue that one for people. But, but anyway, so Chuck uh, told uh, Matt and Dave that, uh, and myself that he was at the concert where they recorded this, which was it was recorded at a club in New York in 1982 or yeah, 82, I guess. And uh, so in between the songs at one point, Ozzy Osbourne does these big woos, like, woo! And uh, Chuck told us this was him yelling in the the audience. His voice was so loud and apparently, you know, sounded just like Ozzy coming through the PA, they decided to leave it on the recording, I guess. Um, But I guess the, 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 (laughs) the, the... worst and just most ridiculous rumor that he he had told us was that uh the drummer of rush you know neil peart uh had a device installed behind his drum set that would inject heroin into his legs when his legs bounced up and down you know using the double kick drums so it sounds reasonable enough so um all the all these kind of myths and stories though and there, you know there's a lot of them and most of them are pretty fucking hilarious especially you know the rod stewart stomach pumping one which depending on you know who you talk to it was you know he had gallons of dog sperm in his stomach that he needed to have pumped out or some people say it was human sperm from a an orgy he was at regardless it's a fucking it's a ridiculous rumor that even a 13 year old would question but uh, the main reason i was really thinking of these is uh Aside from, I just had recently went on a little Aussie and Sabbath bender a few weeks ago, and and I went pretty deep into that too, I have to say. I mean, I didn't go beyond like Bark at the Moon or anything like that, but those first two records and a handful of tracks on those other Aussie albums uh, make for for a good little work of uh, post-Sabbath work for him. And, And of course, the Dio stuff with sabbath rules every every second of that and if you know you're not hip to the record they did in the 90s called dehumanizer you you should be it has arguably their best song he ever recorded with uh tony called after all the dead so check that out i'll probably put it on the uh playlist that accompanies this uh podcast episode so you you should check that out they when they toured uh as heaven and hell they i think they opened a lot of the shows with that song uh, but the main reason I was thinking about this stuff is this this type of mythology just doesn't really exist for newer artists at this point, and I think it's because everyone is just out there now. And I, you know, I, I love having uh, access to artists now. You know, I mean, not access twenty four hour access, but 
it's cool that you can, you know, potentially send a, a message or, or comment on something Ace Freely did, and you might actually get a response from him. Uh, you know, like the time I, I posted a picture of an Isaac Hayes record, and the official Isaac Hayes Instagram account liked my picture. So, you know, if you ever want to tell your friends that you know someone famous, you can tell you can tell that story that you you know someone who is you know sort of connected to Isaac Hayes. Um, on the other hand, though, I don't you know need to see every fucking smoothie that Paul Stanley makes. And, uh, you know, if, although the, the good thing about following Paul Stanley on social media is every time you read one of his posts, you have to sort of read it in his live banter voice, which I'm not going to do here. But, uh, come on, people! I just made this fucking vegetable lasagna! How many of you people like vegetable lasagna? How many people do you like to get licked? Anyway. The point I'm really trying to get here and, and why I put this together was uh, interviewing people for this this podcast, even though so far they've all been people I already knew. It, it gives me sort of the same satisfaction as learning something real about one of my musical or comedy heroes. You know, the, these folks I've had on the podcast so far are all just as important to me as, you know, huge ones I've loved and, and followed all my life and will presumably never contact or talk to. And that's fine. But, you know, more importantly, I just wanted to talk about Ozzy and Kiss. So, you know, I, <laughs> I hope it wasn't too uh, too painful and boring to listen to. Uh, next next week, we'll be back with a, a great interview I did uh, a couple weeks ago with uh, John Brookhouse, uh, who you, you might know as the singer and one of the guitar players from Boston's Amazing Worshipper. We talk a lot about sort of some of the same stuff I just talked about here. Uh, but he's a, he's got a lot of cool opinions and stories and stuff about music and uh, yeah that one's pretty much all about music and, and it's a great interview and uh, I think you'll dig it uh, and f- thanks again for all the feedback and and for all the follows and listens and downloads it's been pretty great so far and uh, if you're not following me on Facebook uh, you can follow me on there at facebook.com slash t-a-t-p podcast that's t-a-t-p podcast or you can find my uh i have a podbean website which is uh talk about the passion dot podbean dot com and uh, also if you can do me a huge favor uh go to itunes and review or, or grade the uh podcast you know be honest if you like it if you don't like it uh it helps and uh, we'd love to uh, keep going with this. So anyway, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>